Hey, this is Stephen, and I want to welcome you or welcome you back to the Grove Church Podcast. For more information or to find more resources like this one, be sure to visit us at grove.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope the following message is encouraging and meaningful to your life. Well, good morning to all of you, and welcome to the Grove. My name is Stephen, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we are wrapping up one of my favorite sermon series we've done in a while, all about love songs. And what we've been doing is we've been kind of examining the content of the messages in the love songs that we listen to, because while they're fun to listen to and they kind of create the soundtrack for our lives, they do contain some messages that subtly infiltrate and inform the way we think about our relationships, how they should go, what they should look like. And some of those messages are actually not all that accurate, and in fact, we need to press pause on some of them. And so if you've been with us the last couple of weeks as we've gone through this series, we've kind of uncovered some of these faulty messages that are in some of our favorite love songs. And the first week we looked at this idea that's in every love song and in every love story and is the idea behind the smash it bachelor and bachelorette. There's a right person for me. And once I find the right person, everything will be all right. Now, it may be the case that there is a right person for you, but what we talked about is that just because they're right for you doesn't mean that the job is over and the work is done and that you will live happily ever after. We talked about how a relationship requires so much more than initial chemistry, and we talked about the steps that we have to go through to ensure that we do the work in our relationships so that everything will end up being all right, and not just leave the chance and not just leave it to initial attraction and chemistry. And then last week, we continued this idea. It talked about what happens once we get into our marriages, once we get into our significant relationships, and the way the love songs inform how we think and feel about how those should go. And we said this, the right relationship will fulfill all of my, and then you just get to fill in the blank with anything that you can think of. So all my hopes, all my dreams, all my expectations, all my needs, all my wants, all my desires, Anything that could possibly make me happen. We recognize that if you were to imagine filling up a giant bucket with all of that stuff and trying to give it to your significant other, nobody would be able to carry that. That'd be too heavy. And no one person is capable of handling all of your fill in the blank. And so we talked about how you needed to diversify your social portfolio. If it's true for finances, it's true for your relationships. And so you've got to spread out the way that you have your needs met appropriately in the context of marriage, this was not a hall pass for anybody, so don't get that idea, but how you had to look to other people because your spouse was not capable of meeting all of your infinite and many needs. And so today, we're going to talk about a message that is particularly harmful, not because it is contained in love songs, but precisely because it is absent from love songs. Now, when you listen to love songs, and particularly the ones that we've talked about the last couple of weeks, they all fall under this category over here about how wonderful, how amazing, how perfect love can be. How great it is when we finally meet that perfect person. Everything is right in the world. The stars align. We look into their eyes, and we live happily ever after. And we talked about, again, how all that is untrue. But we love those love songs. They're so good. Allie played one last week that emphasized that idea by maybe the greatest love song band ever, Chicago, that talked about how you're the meaning of my life and you're the inspiration. What Allie failed to mention is that that song is on the greatest love song playlist of all time, curated by yours truly. 
So in addition to this sermon series, we've been doing a little friendly competition about who had the greatest love song playlist between Allie, Michael, and myself. And unofficially, I'm going to just go ahead and accept the award today. Uh, in front of all of you, the numbers haven't come in, but it was pretty clear who was going to win this thing. But there's this category of love songs. But there's a whole different category of love songs that are kind of like the anti-love songs. And they're way over here. And they're what happens when you break up, when you lose love, when you don't have love anymore and you're yearning for, pining for that particular person. And so it's either this unrequited love that you just wished it would come back to you, and that's the stuff that we listen to by ourselves and we kind of cry to and it makes us feel, you know, soothed emotionally a little bit. Or there's its kind of its cousin, the angry love songs, the I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped up four-wheel drive and scratched my name into his leather seats kind of love song. Some country fans here. Yeah. So there's that category also. So there's the this is what happens when I lose you. Or here's what happens when you left me and what I do to get back at you. And there's this huge gap in the middle about how you navigate a relationship responsibly, how you manage this word that we don't like to admit to in our relationships called conflict. See, there's not a lot of love songs about how you navigate conflict, how you talk through issues and disagreements. You know, there's no country singer standing up there and saying, singing these words like last night we sat together on the couch and you shared your feelings and I shared mine. We saw each other's differences and recognized that there was some common ground between us. Gosh, I love you and I feel closer than I ever have to you before. That's not going to make top of the charts. There aren't those love songs, but that's actually the instruction that we need out of love songs. We need some guidance on how we navigate conflict. Because here's what people don't tell you. We teach people trigonometry and all of these other things that we'll never use ever again in school, but we don't teach people how to navigate relationships. I'm going to get an angry email from a math teacher later. It's like, trigonometry is important. You'll use that later in your life. But nobody walks us through how to be in good relationship with one another, particularly when it gets hard. And inevitably, it will always get hard. We think that because of these love songs, either there'll never be any problems and then we're shocked and confused when we face problems or we think that the only way to navigate these problems and conflicts is you just key their car or you know, send an angry email to all of their family and friends and there's gotta be this middle ground for how we navigate conflict, but we're not taught that. And love songs don't sing about it. And so it's always interesting to me when I meet with couples who I'm about to officiate their wedding because we get to have these kind of personal conversations that you wouldn't normally have in everyday conversations. So if I called you up and I said, hey, let's go to lunch and get to know each other, we'd have a very surface-level, superficial conversation, which is fine. That's how it's supposed to go. But there's something that happens when someone's about to officiate your wedding that you just kind of open up kind of the jacket and you let, everybody, you let them in on everything that's going on in your relationship. And so inevitably, there are two responses that I commonly see when I ask couples to talk to me about how they navigate and how they manage conflict. And there's one that kind of falls into this camp. And they say, oh, oh. And they're, they're so proud when they get to do this. They love this. Typically, they're a younger couple. This is no accusations, but typically this is how it works. We, we never fight. We haven't had a single conflict. We never get into an argument, which I love to just sit back and smile and say, just give it time. 
and all the married people laugh in the room because you know that inevitably it's going to happen. Or the other thing they say is, well, we don't really know how to fight fair. Like we just, the gloves come off, shots blow the belt, like it gets ugly. I don't hear a lot of couples who have already been equipped prior to marriage talk about responsibly, yeah, we have a pretty good toolkit for how we navigate the disagreements in our relationship. Because we know that since nobody teaches us, most of us have to learn this the hard way if we learn this at all. And so today we're going to talk about how you do that. Since love songs don't have a message that we can look to to inform us, we're going to have to find it somewhere else. Because here's what we need to understand from the beginning. The natural gravitational pull for any relationship is apart. It is not just the case that if you stay together, you will stay together. The natural gravitational pull for any relationship is apart. It does not mean you're doing something wrong. It does not mean that you've picked the wrong person. It does not mean that your relationship is doomed. What it means is you're just in a relationship. And so what we have to figure out is as we naturally grow and drift apart, how do we create opportunities to come back together? And that's what's so great about conflict is we, for some of us, we think it's scary. For some of us, we think it's unavoidable and it's dangerous. But the reality is conflict is an unbelievable opportunity for your relationship to grow closer. Now, you've all experienced this whether you realize it or not. Because inevitably, you've had some disagreement in your primary romantic relationship at some point in your life where you got into an argument about something. And most likely, the something wasn't something very significant. It was like, hey, I've asked you seven times to pick up your laundry. And it's like, you saw the laundry on the floor. Why don't you pick it up? I was busy at work. And then you get into this argument about whether or not somebody picked up the laundry and why you shouldn't have to or they should or I did these other things. And so it's only fair that you do these things. And inevitably it escalates and escalates and escalates. And then somewhere around kind of peak escalation, it crescendos, and then somebody says something like, I just wish you appreciated me. And you're like, well, where did that come from? And then you have a conversation about what's really going on. This idea that maybe you're not getting all of your emotional needs met, or maybe you're feeling ignored by your significant other. And so then you talk about that thing, and it's no longer about the laundry that's on the floor. And what happens after you talk about that thing? You're like, oh, I love you so much. I feel so much closer to you than I did before. I'm so glad that we're able to have these conversations. And so today, the, the question is, how do you get to that point without going through all the other stuff? How, in the midst of initial conflict, do you recognize it as an opportunity to begin to diagnose what's going on in your relationship and how do you begin to have the skill set, the awareness to say, hey, let's talk about what's really going on. How can we use this conflict as an opportunity to grow closer? And so I'm gonna point us today and walk us through this short passage of scripture. Now here's what often happens in the church. One of two things when you come and you listen to a sermon. You either get this kind of answer to how you solve a problem in your life that's overly simplistic, and maybe many of you have had that experience where you just kind of roll your eyes and you're like, that'll never work, that's out of touch, that's unrealistic, that's naive, that's too simple, that's not how it goes in real life. And you check out, and you ignore it. 
and you discard it because it's too simple. Or we do this thing where we make it so complex and so confusing, and there's so many steps, and there's these six things that you have to do on Tuesday, and then seven new things that you have to do the following Wednesday when there's a full moon, you know, on the third month of the year, and you're like, I don't know how to follow all of these rules, and there's no compliance because it's too complex. But there's something else on the other side of that complexity. It's not too simple. It's not too complex. It's simplicity on the other side of complexity where it seems simple, but it's actually deep. It's actually based in a complex understanding of the natural dynamics between people. And that's what this passage is. And what's fun, and we'll look at this here in a second, what's fun about this passage is I love when modern science affirms ancient wisdom and truth. This new, you, know, you hear about these new things. Hey, everybody, this new idea called fasting is good for you. You know, and everybody in the church is like, yeah, we, we know about that one. This is one of those things. You're going to look at it, and modern psychology and sociology and relationship experts are going to point to these things, and it's going to seem like they are the first to discover it. But really, ancient wisdom and biblical truth has uncovered this long ago. So we're going to be out of the book of James. James was a brother of Jesus. And James wrote these words to a group of Christians who are trying to understand how to navigate the same relational dynamics that we're in. And so he writes this. He says, you must understand this. And he puts a huge emphasis. This could be translated such as, tattoo this on your arm, stamp it to your forehead, put it on every signpost in your life, Every intersection, every crossroad, on the door frames, on your bathroom mirror, post-it note, on your rear view mirror in your car, put this everywhere because you have to understand this. And the reason that he says you have to understand this is because we're inclined to not understand it. We're inclined to miss this very simple fact about the roles that we enter into in a relationship. And we're going to look at his advice in a second. But one of the things that we have to understand is that in every relationship, particularly marriages, your significant romantic relationships, people adopt one of two roles. And as I was working through this, I thought, this is a little, a little tricky to help everybody understand what's the best way to do that. And so I decided that I would just demonstrate it for you and kind of what this looks like. So I'm going to ask Allie and Dan to come up to help me with this. They don't really know what's about to happen, but each of them is going to adopt one of two roles that we naturally enter into in relationships. So Allie, if you'll stand right here, and Dan, if you'll stand right over there, facing each other. Now, uh, there are two roles that you can have in a relationship, and they're affectionately described as the hailstorm. I'm just going to guess. I don't know <laughs> if this is true about y'all's relationship. Just a shot in the dark. And then the other one is described as the turtle. Now, Dan, will you put this jacket on, hood up for me. Now, what the hailstorm does is the hailstorm is the person in the relationship who's a verbal processor. They want to talk about things, and not just anything, but everything, and not just at any moment, but immediately. They're the ones that are like, hey, and then they just go. And so all of their feelings, they're ready to process instantly. They want to talk about what would happen the other night at the dinner thing when you gave me that weird look that the other person isn't aware that happened or when you didn't show up when you said you did and that triggered this other thing. And so we got to talk about this. Now, stereotypes aren't always accurate, 
but they exist for a reason. And so my guess is this is roughly true about the two of you. I'm going to need y'all to take a couple steps closer. Yeah, yeah, pretend y'all like each other. Okay, so when in the midst of a conflict, in the midst of, per, of a perceived disconnection in their relationship, the hailstorm feels anxiety. They feel fear. They're nervous about the state of their relationship, even if it's on a small scale. So in turn, what does the hailstorm do in response to this anxiety, nervousness, perceived disconnection? What a hailstorm does, they start hailing. <laughs> yeah, so you can keep hailing. They're talking about their feelings. They're sharing how they feel. Now, 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 now. I know it was a rough morning in the Shulman household. So Dan, if you'll throw that hood on for me. The turtle is the person who likes to take time to process. They're not ready to share immediately. When you ask them how they're feeling, their response is, I don't know. And that's the honest answer because they do not know how they're feeling in the moment. It takes time. They're the type of person that in the midst of a conflict, once the conflict has kind of died down a little bit, like the next day, they come up with the thing that they wish that they would have said the day before in the midst of the relationship. Like, oh, no, no. Okay, so what I'm actually feeling is, and the processing time and the processing speed is just dramatically different between the hailstorm and the turtle. So when the hailstorm perceives disconnection in the relationship, the hailstorm starts hailing. What does this make the turtle do? It makes the turtle want to go into the shell because why? It's not safe out here. And so as the hailstorm hails, the turtle goes further and further into the turtle's shell because the hailstorm is hailing. Now, as the turtle retreats into the turtle's shell, guess what happens to the hailstorm? It triggers the hailstorm. Yes, and so the hailstorm feels more fear, more anxiety, more disconnection in the relationship. And so the hailstorm keeps hailing. And as the hailstorm keeps hailing, what does the turtle do? Further and further and further into the shell because it's not safe to go outside. So that's the dynamic that we have to begin to recognize in our relationship. Now, maybe it's the case that the roles are flipped and maybe one of you is the hailstorm and the other one is you, the turtle. There even is, is the case where sometimes you flip roles in the midst of your relationship and sometimes one is the hailstorm and sometimes one is the turtle. All right. Y'all feel better? Y'all feel closer? Y'all need to hug it out? Okay. Y'all give them a hand. Thank you very much. She paid me $20 to get to throw all that stuff at you, Dan. So, in response to this dynamic, in response to the way that we naturally go about navigating conflict, the writer of James, probably James, safe guess, he says this. He says, you must understand this. Pay attention to. It is not intuitive. It does not always make sense. You are, you are inclined to miss this and forget this. Let everyone be quick to listen. Let everyone be quick to listen. Because we know in the moment when we're engaged in this cycle and dance and each one is doing their thing and it's triggering the other one's anxiety response, nobody is hearing the other person. The hailstorm isn't he hearing what the turtle has to say because the turtle's not talking and the turtle's not talking because all he hears is just stuff coming at, or she, coming at the turtle. So you gotta be quick to listen. What's actually being said? One of the great tools that you can do in these moments is to be quick to listen 
and then reframe back what you've heard. So much of us, we listen to respond as opposed to listening to understand. And so we receive this message and then we're ready and we're mounting a defense and a rebuttal and a response to why what they said isn't true or accurate. We're not, we're not quick to listen for the benefit of the relationship. We're quick to listen for the benefit of our, our ego and our pride. And so how do we change the way that we listen to the needs of the other person? Because hear this, in every complaint in your relationship, in every single complaint, there is a hidden request for connection. In every conflict that you go through, whether you are aware of it or not, or whether the person who initiates it or not, in every conflict, there's a hidden request for connection. And so James tells us to be quick to listen. Can you figure out what the hidden request is? Wow, it seems like you're really upset at me for that thing that happened. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do this thing or that thing that would upset you. I didn't realize that you felt that way about it. Will you tell me a little bit more about kind of what you expected out of me or what you thought was gonna happen that I didn't do? Can you tell me more about why this was so upsetting for you? Can you help me understand maybe what you'd like me to do instead? Seems like you're really mad. Is there something that like, maybe you're afraid of? Is there, what are you sensing in our relationship that maybe you don't experience? How, do you, how can you be quick to listen to actually understand what's being said, the hidden messages, the hidden requests for connection? Then the next thing that James says, be slow to speak. Hailstorms. Those of you, the ones who are getting elbows in their ribs right now, sometimes you've got to create enough space, which is the exact opposite of what you want to do. You've got to sit in that anxiety and that fear of disconnection from your significant other. You've got to sit in that place and allow the turtle to have some opportunity to come out of the shell. It's only when you stop hailing that the turtle will come out of the shell. Turtles, you have to get braver about coming out of your shell if there's a little bit of silence. If the hail stops for a moment, you've gotta have a little more courage. You've gotta be slow to speak. This works in partnership with this idea about quick to listen. It's only in this dynamic when you have ordered these things the right way, when you've placed the proper emphasis on these things, that you can begin to understand what's actually going on in the conflict. Because usually it is never about the thing. There's always a thing behind the thing, just like the laundry example. Yes, they would like you to pick up the laundry, but typically the reason that they're upset at you for, picking up the, for not picking up the laundry is because when you don't pick up the laundry after they ask you to pick up the laundry, it feels disrespectful. And it's hard to be in a relationship with somebody who you don't feel like they respect you. And when you're constantly being told to pick up the laundry and that's like the 12th thing on your to-do list because you're busy and you're stressed and they're constantly asking you to pick up the laundry, you get frustrated because it feels like they don't understand you and all the other things that you have going on in your relationship. You see how none of this is actually about laundry? It's about all of these other things that are happening in the context of a relationship. When you're quick to listen and you're slow to speak, you can begin to unpack and uncover this stuff. And then the next thing that James says is you have to be slow to anger. Now, anger is a normal, natural human emotion. It's okay to get angry. It's not wrong to be angry. But here's what you need to know about anger. Anger is a warning sign that there might be other things 
coming down the path. Anger should be an indication to you that there's more going on than maybe what you realize. So I'm not saying don't get angry in your relationships. I know that's too simple. I know that's too easy. What I'm saying is, is when you feel yourself getting angry, that should be your indicator to begin to ask yourself, okay, what's this really about? What am I most upset about? I've heard that anger is the bodyguard for fear. So maybe there's something I'm afraid of. Maybe it's not evident or obvious. Maybe it's I'm just fearing a a perceived disconnection from my significant other. Maybe I'm not feeling heard, respected, trusted, and that makes me angry in response to this other thing. It's always in response to something. And typically we're not slow to anger, we're quick to anger. It's like these boxing gloves over here. We love putting these on because these are effective tools to do battle. Just like in the heavyweight fight last night, these guys wear these things because this is what you need to win the fight. Here's the problem. These are really good in a very specific context. When you armor up with your anger, with your self-righteousness, with your ego and pride, and you're ready to do battle with your significant other, there's only one outcome. One of you's winning. And guess what that means about the other one? The other one's losing. And if one of you in your relationship loses, you both lose. These are really good when you're fighting and doing battle and trying to achieve victory. These are terrible when you're trying to do something more complicated, like come to a resolution. Imagine trying to tie your shoes with these. Imagine if your loved one was sick and the surgeon walks in ready to do brain surgery and he's got these on. You'd be concerned because you recognize these aren't the proper tools for the thing that they're about to do. The same is true in our relationship with anger. Anger is an indicator that there's something else going on, but it is not the right tool to solve what's going on. And so James is really clear. He says, be slow to anger. Anger is dangerous. Not in and of itself, but because it's an indicator of things that are to come. And that's exactly what he says next. He says, for anger does not produce God's righteousness. Anger leads us down the path where things can happen in our relationships that actually, actually negatively impact our relationship for good. There was a series of kind of decade-long studies done by a relationship expert named Dr. John Gottman. And what he did is he brought couples in over a series of 10 years. And at the beginning of the 10-year of the study, he asked these married couples to solve a conflict in 15 minutes. And what they did is they recorded the study. And then they went back and they figured out through like two second intervals, these like thin slicing of the dynamics between the the two couples based on their reactions, based on the words that were said, based on the glances, the eye rolls, the look. They begin to identify all of the different emotions. They came up with dozens of different characterizations for the different emotions that were going on in this 15 minute clip of these couples. And at the end of this decade-long study, they brought back these couples to figure out what the status of their relationship was. They got so good at predicting how certain indicators and behaviors and actions within a marriage would lead to divorce that they were accurate, over 91% accurate, 10 years later as to which couples would still be married. They got that good at predicting divorce based on what they were able to observe in the context of a conflict between two people. And this is what they came up with. 
they identify that there are four things. John Gottman calls them the four horsemen that lead to the demise of a relationship. And they are all initiated by anger. Anger is the thing that brings on these other things that you have to be careful of. Because when these are present in a relationship, it does not mean that the relationship's over, but it means that the relationship is headed down a really difficult path. So the first one is criticism. Now, criticism is this thing that you lobby against the other one because they did something that you don't like. Now, it is not to be confused with a complaint. A complaint is about an action. A complaint is about a word said, about something specific. Criticism is a generic character assault. Here's the difference. Complaint. I was scared when you were running late and didn't call me. I thought we'd agreed that we would do that for each other. That's a complaint. Criticism. You never think about how your behavior is affecting other people. I always think of you, but you're just selfish. You never think of others. You never think of me. Now, one is about a specific behavior. The other one is a generic assault on character. If you are using the words always or never in your complaint, guess what? It's always criticism and it's never going to work. So we do this. And so we lob these character assaults at people we love and care about because we're trying to get something from them that they're not understanding that we need. Now, what's in response to this criticism? It's defensiveness. Anytime somebody assaults my character, I'm like, ooh, hold up, buddy. And I want to give it back to them in the same measure and manner that they gave it to me. So you can imagine a scenario. Here's the question. Did you call Betty and Ralph to let them know that we're not coming tonight as you promised this morning? Here's the defensive response. I was just too darn busy today. As a matter of fact, you know just how busy my schedule was. Why didn't you just do it? And everybody's like, well, I do that every day. Here's what you should say instead. Did you call Betty and Ralph? Yeah, 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 yeah. Not the non-defensive response. Oops, I forgot. I should have asked you this morning to do it because I knew my day would be packed. You know what? That's my fault. Let me call them right now. A non-defensive response takes ownership. A non-defensive response accepts responsibility, recognizes that they made a mistake. It's okay to make mistakes in a relationship. You're going to make mistakes in a relationship. The question is, are you capable of owning them? And when the mistake is pointed out, in a critical manner, it's really hard to not be defensive in response. And so the, when we begin to avoid criticism in our relationships, we help the other to avoid defensiveness as their response. But if these are left to persist, if you are constantly critical and you are constantly defensive in your relationship, inevitably, it leads to the next one, stonewalling. That's when one person just shuts it all down. You know what? this isn't working. I don't feel like you're treating me fairly. It doesn't matter what I say in response back. You're not hearing me. You don't appreciate me. Just power down. And this can take the form of they just go silent. They leave and go into the other room. They stop talking. They leave. They stay at work all the time. They get in their car and drive off. Stonewalling. These things are not terminal but they are indicators that there's more going on that you need to pay attention to in your relationship. And here's the last one, 
as anger is left to persist, to grow, to swell, to permeate your relationship, as it moves past criticism and defensiveness and stonewalling, it will inevitably lead to contempt. And Dr. John Gottman says contempt is the number one predictor of divorce. It does not mean that if you've ever acted contemptuously in your relationship, it's doomed. It just means that if left unchecked, in their study and research, they found that it is the number one predictor that a relationship is headed for deep trouble. And here's why. Contempt assumes the position of moral superiority of, over the other person. You are no longer equals in a relationship. It is no longer two people matched together, headed towards the same goal. It is one person in a higher, more superior place than the other person. It is adopting the attitude in your relationship towards the other person that you owe me. You owe me. And here's what happens when you live in a relationship with the attitude of contempt. This disgust for the other person, this belittling, judgmental, you just can't, you roll your eyes at everything they say, you don't give them credit, you don't give them any type of recognition that they exist as a person. When you live in that dynamic and you adopt the, the attitude and the position that you owe me, it's just like with money. If you owed me $200 and you gave me $100, I do not experience that as a gift. That is a payment and you are still short. And this is how we enact so much of our relationships. We take on this debt-debtor relationship where they owe me and so nothing that they ever do is a gift. It is always a payment and they are always short because there's no way that you can pay off moral superiority. And this is why it's the number one predictor of divorce. So what do we do? James tells us. Therefore, the reason that there's a therefore is you have to ask what the therefore is there for. In response to everything that he just said, when you're quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, because you recognize that anger does not lead to God's righteousness, live with humility. It lets go of the attitude that you owe me. And it adds on to the end of it that you owe me nothing. And when you're able to adopt this position, when you're able to adopt this posture in your relationships, you recognize that everything that your significant other does for you is a gift. And it's not something that you did or deserved or earned. And when you receive something as a gift that you didn't deserve or earn, guess what it's called? It's called grace. And grace can fundamentally change any relationship. It's the posture that Jesus models for us. Imagine Jesus hanging on the cross, perfect, sinless, blameless, looking at his accusers, looking at the people who led him to this place, who beat him, who mocked him, who humiliated him. If anybody had a position of moral superiority, it was Jesus in that moment. He looks down and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He doesn't attribute it to malice. He doesn't attribute it to a character default or a defect. He attributes it to ignorance. Imagine your relationships. If you let go of your moral superiority, if you let go of your criticism and your defensiveness and your stonewalling and the contempt that you might have for your significant other, 
And imagine if you said, you know what? You don't owe me anything. Thank you for everything. You're no longer holding a debt over their head, waiting, them, waiting for them to continue to make payments that they'll never be able to pay off. But you say, no, you owe me nothing. And I so appreciate the thing that you did. Yes, I had to ask you six times to pick the laundry up off the floor, but I'm so grateful that you did on the seventh time. I'm so grateful I didn't have to ask an eighth time. There's a lot of stuff here. We could stay for the next hour and I could keep talking about all of this. But I recognize that so many of you want to go and talk about this at lunch. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Live with humility. Let go of the debts. And see conflict as an opportunity to draw closer in your relationships. Let me pray for our time together this morning. Gracious and loving God, thank you for today. Thank you for the reminder that there is opportunity in conflict, that you have given us the example of how to live and conduct ourselves in relationships and that above all else, let us live in humility. Let us be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And in that way, we may better resemble you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Dallas area, we would love for you to visit us. For directions, service times, and more info, visit us at grove.org.